Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Brian Sweetek. Brian Sweetek is a collection of 206-some-odd bones and associated soft tissues. He is also the author of the books, My Beloved Brontosaurus, and Written in Stone, as well as the Scientific American blog, Lilaps. His bylines have appeared in a National Geographic, Smithsonian, Wired, Slate, The Wall Street Journal, Nature, and other publications. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. The book we're going to be talking about today is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. Brian, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. This, this, is, this is a very interesting read to me, and I'm sure our, our listeners would enjoy it too. And I'd like to sort of go through the many topics that you uh, address in the book. It, it's uh, representative of, of one of the realities, and that is that uh, uh, we didn't evolve in linear fashion to the skeletons that we have today, right? That's right. I mean, really, when we think about how evolution works, it's really a branching process. Uh, we, we tend to, you know, in the iconography of evolution, think about it in straight lines because, you know, we're in our modern world. You can pick, you know, any species that's alive today, you know, most, most of all us, and, you know, work your way backwards and say, okay, you know, um, this trait came from here and this trait came from there and at this time and in that time. But that, you know, is kind of ignoring all these other, um, you know, branches and all these other organisms. So uh, this isn't really a story of just um, one, you know, linear progression where you're just adding, you know, one trait after the next. It's this really, you know, vibrant, you know, intertwined story that involves, you know, all sorts of uh, organisms, even just understanding, you know, the evolution of our own skeleton, much less anything else, involves, you know, all these little, you know, stopping points of uh, all these, you know, strange creatures that we might not even think that we're, you know, related to, and yet we are. Mm-hmm. The, the introduction starts with a description of your visit to a museum and some poor Eastern European uh, whose skull has been collected for this bizarre collection of skulls, and he tried to cut his own throat, but that didn't work. And that points to something about what happens to bone. <laughs> what happens to oh, that's right. or, or, or Yeah, um, so when you know, he, he did that, uh, he, he found that... Uh, it didn't work. He he, he survived. Uh, the the placard beneath the skull says that you know he lived without melancholy for for the rest of his days. Um, and the reason why is because his larynx started to turn to bone. So a tissue that we think of as normally being soft um, actually started to ossify. Started to have bone tissue grow within it. And this is actually a normal thing that happens. It happens to to most of us to some extent. And uh, you know in other cases, you know bone can grow almost anywhere you know, in your body, in, in, in your muscles. You know, people have had bone grow in their salivary glands of all places. <laughs> um, usually this is the result of, you know, injury or some uh, pathology. In other cases, it's just a natural progression of things. But, you know, I think I picked that as an example, um, not to be macabre, but because it really was a great example to me of the vitality of, of bone. It is a very dynamic and responsive tissue um, that, you know, doesn't always stay contained within our skeletons. We often tend to think of our bones or our skeletons as being relatively static. And, you know, you know, we get our adult skeleton that more or less stays the same, but, you know, nothing could really be further from the truth. It's constantly changing and responding to the environment around it. 
And that, that's that's the point I was going to make, and you made it for us. It, it, the bones are constantly changing. And the other quality that I think is important is that they're so different than other tissue in the body because they uh, because of their durity and how long they last and the, the legacies that they leave for guys like you that study bones. Uh, it tells us so much. They do, yeah. It, it's really unique. I mean, really, um, when we think about the tissues and organ systems and things in the body, you know, bones seem to stand apart, even though they're, you know, integrated just as much as anything else. For example, you know, if you are extremely stressed during your uh, childhood or malnourished, that your skeleton might not grow to the stature that it otherwise would because, you know, even something, you know, as just your emotions and feeling um, a lot of anxiety or, you know, things that release stress hormones then affect your growth and affect the way that your bones respond. Um, that this is an integrated system. It's not something that's kind of on uh, autopilot. And it's made of, you know, these, <laughs> pardon me, these two components, hydroxyapatite and collagen. So hydroxyapatite is the mineral part. That's the hard part of bone. And collagen is the flexible part. And it's those two things together that makes bone incredibly resilient. Um, if it was just one or the other, you know, our bones wouldn't really work very well or work in the way that they do now. If it was just the collagen part, uh, we wouldn't be able to support ourselves at all, just be, you know, flexible tissue. There's a, you know, science experiment that you run at home. I, I did it, um, you know, my elementary school days where you take a chicken bone or, you know, bone left over from dinner and you leave it in, you know, vinegar for a couple of days. And, you know, when you take it out, you know, the mineral part has been dissolved away by the, the acid. And uh, you can basically tie that bone in, in knots because it's mostly just the collagen that's left. Um, if it was just the mineral part, it'd be extremely fragile and shatter very easily. So, you know, bone is this, you know, really wonderful compromise between um, this durable mineralized part and this flexible protein part. And, you know, the fact that these are hard tissues, you know, our teeth um, included as part of our skeleton, means that, you know, we have a fossil record of vertebrate life through the past, you know, 500 million years or so that, you know, we can, you know, see some of these dramatic changes in the way that skeletons have responded to, you know, all sorts of um, different, you know, evolutionary pressures and, you know, uh, needs to, you know, uh, adapt and that we just don't have uh, for other sorts of organisms in, in many cases. You know, we do have a fossil record of soft-bodied organisms, but those are either the traces that they left behind, so like worm burrows and things like that, or cases of exceptional preservation where, you know, like an insect trapped in amber or, you know, a, a crustacean that got buried very quickly in the bottom of the ocean. But that fossil record is much spottier. You know, the fact that we have these hard parts inside of us have really you know, helped create the fossil record as it is and told us this story of life through time. Mm-hmm. And, and let's jump back in time now, the, uh, the, the, the 400 and something million years for the Cambrian explosion and the miracle of what was found on the Burgess Shale uh, is, is pretty important, especially a certain uh, otherwise obscure and unimportant chordate uh, called, I'm going to try to pronounce, Pekaya. Yeah, Pekaya, yeah. So this Pekaya. was, um, yes, one of the animals that was found in the Burgess Shale. So when you think about this environment, you know, over 500 million years ago, this was um, a sort of reef, like an ancient reef where you, know, you wouldn't see fish because fish hadn't evolved yet. It was mostly dominated by a lot of really strange invertebrates and arthropods. Uh, you know, something like uh, you know, a creature out of a, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing. It's all like you know, jointed appendages and gnashing mouth parts and all this you know, um, 
really strange stuff. And those are the dominant forms of light. But amongst that, you had this little squiggly thing is initially identified as a worm, and it turns out to be basically a protovertebrate, you know, an early chordate. Um, and that's this animal, Pacaya. It's about as long as, you know, maybe your, your little finger. And it's got two things about it that made it really remarkable, or at least remarkable for our story. And that's one that sensory organs, like you know, some other animals, are all bound up in, in the head. So you know what it used to, you know, to see, to, to smell, to taste, that was all bound up together in one spot. And along its back, there was this flexible, you know, kind of tube uh, called a notochord. So basically, the forerunner of a spine. And these might seem like pretty mundane things, but the fact is that the body plan of this little squiggly animal set up our basic body plan that, you know, we have a head, a skull, where most of our sensory organs in our brain are, is centered, and that we have a spine running along our back, where if, you know, Pacaya or another animal were different, if that notochord had been on the stomach side or arranged differently, then our body plans might be totally different if we evolved at all. So there's this little obscure creature that, you know, if you went back to the Burgess Shale time, you probably wouldn't think would be very important at all. But it was animals like that that really set the foundation of what our body plan would eventually become. And if they had gone extinct or if evolution had gone a little bit differently, then the entire you know, history of life on Earth would have been you know, very much altered and we probably wouldn't exist. So you know, we're able to look back you know, across the past 500 million years and see you know, some of these essential traits in common with this thing that you know, otherwise we wouldn't uh, pay much attention to. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, then skip to the next topic that you brought up, and it has to do with two rivals, Marsh and Cope, who started out as friends and wound up as uh, fierce competitors in their science as they looked for bones in certain areas, especially a New Jersey marsh. That's right. So um, these were two of America's... Um founding paleontologists, they uh, met as students and they, you know, initially hit it off a bit. And Cope, who worked out of Philadelphia, invited Marsh, who worked out of New Haven, Connecticut, you know, out to this fossil site. And Cope was paying the uh, workers there who were mining uh, the area for a mineral called glauconite that I think was used in fertilizer, if I remember correctly. Um, they were finding fossils, and he'd pay them to send the fossils on to him. Well, Marsh was pretty impressed by the operation, and he paid some of the workers to do the same. And when Cope found out about this, he was furious, and the friendship was ended, and it began this uh, rivalry that went on for decades, you know, really throughout the rest of their lives, where they both wanted to be the premier paleontologist in America. And one of the ways that they tried to do that was by naming as many different species as possible. Uh, and this is the, what you know, we know um, in fossil circles as the bone wars of the 19th century. And, um, <laughs> you know, that we, got, <coughs> pardon me, we got a lot of our you know, favorite dinosaurs like Brontosaurus, like Stegosaurus, you know, Ceratosaurus, um, from you know, this, this, um, what one newspaper called this bitter warfare between these scientists, and it also, you know, helped train the next generation of paleontologists that, you know, Cope and Marsh both did some field work, but especially later in their careers, they mostly paid people to send bones to them um, or had field crews that were working for them. And um, this inadvertently, you know, trained some of the people who would eventually be the next generation of fossil hunters and helped uh, establish paleontology in America in a way that it hadn't been before. And, you know, a lot of our favorite dinosaurs are kind of national treasure, uh, you know, Mesozoic celebrities like came out of this feud and, you know, can still be seen in uh, museums today. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's do a 
a quick and dirty history of the uh, creation of the planet. So you, you start with about 13 billion years ago with the Big Bang, and Earth really became, it came into existence about four and a half billion years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere along the way, organisms that were not plants showed up. And in fact, microbes dominated the planet for an awfully long time. In fact, they probably still, by numbers, yes, still do. Have, yeah. <laughs> have the majority, right? So how did we get from microbes to animals that are forerunners to vertebrates and so on? How, how, how long a period of time did that take? I know that paleontology, uh, the study of dinosaurs, is about creatures that evolved much after the Cambrian age. That's right. I mean, really the stuff that, you know, if we're talking about vertebrate history, if the past, you know, 500 million years or so, about half a billion years, only think about, you know, the origin of, of the universe and then the origin of Earth. And then about, you know, it took about a billion years before the first life on Earth showed up about 3.6 billion years ago. And life was mostly single-celled and, you know, like bacteria today for most of that time. And it was really only about 600 million years ago or so that we start to get, you know, animal life, you know, multicellular organisms. Um, And then, you know, animals themselves, the sort of forerunners of vertebrates, we're talking about, you know, on the order of between 500 and 450 million years ago. So really the stuff that, you know, I talk about in, in the book and the reason why I brought up this timeline is because bone is relatively recent stuff. It hasn't existed comparatively speaking, for uh, for all that long. And it's really kind of impressive that, you know, once it did evolve, that's been expressed in so many different forms and shapes. You know, if you think about just, you know, very briefly, um, all the different, you know, uh, kinds of anatomy that bone underlies. So, uh, you know, everything from uh, Tyrannosaurus rex to, you know, a little brown bat to, you know, a sunny that you might catch in a pond to, you know, yourself to a snake to, you know, Almost any you know vertebrate yeah any vertebrate animal that you mentioned is based in bone. So all those different forms, whether it's you know running, swimming, uh, flying, digging, you know uh, armor for protection, all this stuff has only shown up in the past you know about 500 million years. And uh, mm-hmm. you know that is a very long long time. It's hard to wrap our heads around these time scales. But when you consider that in the context of you know how long Earth has been around, how life how long life on Earth has been around. Uh, it's still relatively recent. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you make the point that, that bones were par- par- part of the key to uh, terrestrial evolution, the, to uh, animals coming up on land and learning to, to live on land. Uh, but, but I don't want to drop the importance of jaws and teeth in this evolutionary process because they're, they're a big part of the story too. Well, that's, I mean, that's why we're able to talk right now. Otherwise, you know, without that, uh, we'd still be like those uh, armored fish that only had, you know, the hole at the front, um, you know, for their mouth, and, and, and that was about it. So that's around, you know, af- after that point, you know, bone first shows up around 455 million years ago, and then, you know, jaws about another 20 to 30 million years um, after that. And it's not just the evolution of uh, biting, um, or the ability to, to feed, and, you know, you look at some of these ancient fish and they look like, you know, um, spiny sharks or things like that. It's uh, other advantages like being able to move the jaw to pump water over the gills or, or to assist with breathing, like even with us, you know, when you go for a jog or something like that and, you know, you open your mouth or the movement of your jaw helps, you know, with, with, with your breathing. So that the evolution of the jaw was this really key 
moment, and of course, teeth went along with it, especially because bone and protective tissues started out as uh, external structures. That you know, you, there was a skeleton that was mostly made of cartilage, much like in sharks and rays. And bone, when it first evolved around 455 million years ago, um, was armor on the outside, and it was much a lot more like teeth. And um, you know, the tissues that became teeth and eventually bone kind of moved along. So as as you had this, you know, these armored fish, they're jawless. The jaw starts to evolve. And some of these spiny armored coatings, you know, still line those jaws, line this hinge, and that becomes teeth. And because there are mineralized body tissues uh, on the outside, this opens up the possibility for the internal skeleton that's, you know, this flexible cartilage stuff to become mineralized, to turn to bone, to become ossified. So eventually you get bone um, that evolved as, you know, armor, as protection, basically sinking in to the skeleton, giving us the endoskeleton that, that we have now, or basically the, the modern version of this. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple of key you know, innovations. The bone didn't start out as internal structural support. It started out as armor and only later got co-opted into this other use. When we, when we look at that process uh, of emerging new species, there are these transitional species that are really key to understanding that, aren't there? Like the Archaeopteryx comes to mind for me. Yeah, um, so these are these key fossils that, um, you know, might not be directly ancestral to us or directly ancestral to each other. It's often very difficult to confirm direct ancestry between, you know, one species and, and another in, in the fossil record, unless we have all the pieces, and unfortunately, because of the nature of the fossil record, we usually don't. But what these are are animals that have what we call transitional features, so features that are sort of in between one point and another that show us how this evolutionary process took place. So you mentioned Archaeopteryx, which is a key fossil in identifying how uh, dinosaurs gave rise to birds or avian dinosaurs, you know, that, you know, uh, birds evolved from something that was very much like Velociraptor covered with feathers, and Archaeopteryx is a key fossil in between those two kinds of body plans between, you know, a sparrow and something like Velociraptor that shows us how these traits were acquired. Um, So, yeah, even like some of these characters that we've talked about so far and, you know, might uh, bring up as as we go along, they're not necessarily our direct ancestors, but they present us with a body plan or an anatomy that helps explain uh, how skeletons uh, changed and evolved and, you know, some of those traits like when and why they began to alter. Mm-hmm. So, so if we turn our attention to some of those early forms that are precursors to the Homo sapien, uh, there's there's some uh, classic finds of fossils. Uh, uh, the name Lucy uh, registers for most of us. And then the, you mentioned the Labre pit, the Labre woman. Uh, how do they show us the transition from swinging in the trees to walking upright? Well, Lucy is a really critical fossil here. So Lucy is about, you know, 3.4 million years old or so, a, a species called Australopithecus afarensis, so a bit smaller than us, about you know maybe half of our modern human stature. Um, but what's really um, sort of compelling about um, Lucy's species and, and her relatives is that they're kind of the snapshot shot of um, life caught between the trees and the ground. So if you look at the upper body 
of Lucy and others of her species. The arms are relatively long. Uh, the fingers are still a bit curved. It's still very much the upper body um, of of an ape, of an animal that um, of a primate that is skilled at moving around in the trees. But if you look at the lower body, and we have uh, fossil tracks from about the same time that uh, confirm this, that the lower body is very much like ours, that you know the big toe on the foot is no longer the thing that juts out to the side to grasp. It's being brought more in line with the rest of the foot for that big push-off during each step. And the legs are um, not you know bent or bowed, but they're kept you know pillar-like kind of directly underneath the body, and this is um, a body that is adapted to uh, walking upright on the ground. So these were prehistoric humans that could still, you know, clamber around in trees when they needed to, but were starting to become adapted to walking around on the ground. So it's this really key moment where, um, you know, our ancestors were, were leaving the trees. And uh, you mentioned the, the fossil from uh, the fossil person from, from La Brea, and that's basically a modern human skeleton. Uh, that's someone who uh, lived in Southern California, you know, over uh, about 12,000 years ago. And, uh, you know, if you found those bones, if they weren't stained with tar, if you found them, um, you know, in other contexts, like you would have no idea that was somebody who lived uh, during the last ice age. Um, our modern human skeletons go back about 300,000 years. And what I kind of really find fascinating about, you know, our human evolutionary record is that if you look at some of these other transitions, like you mentioned Archaeopteryx before, my other favorite is uh, the evolution of whales, how whales used to be these deer-like mammals that lived on the land. And we have this wonderful series of fossils, uh, this really wonderful collection because there's a diversity of early whales that were amphibious. They look like um, mammals that were trying to be crocodiles. Almost they're very, very strange, and, and we can you know follow this transition from land to water, and a you know, really dramatic change that happened in the space of about 10 million years or so. But if you look at, you know, our skeletons compared to the earliest humans, so even going beyond Lucy to, you know, over 4 million years ago, there's another early human called Artipithecus, who was uh, even mm -hmm. more ape-like, that the changes that happened in the skeletons are relatively minor. We think that they're major because, you know, we want to distinguish ourselves, you know, from our earliest relatives, and we can, you know, pick out every little modification to the bone, but there's far less difference between, you know, those early terrestrial whales and like a blue whale today than the first, you know, fossil humans and us. Really, it's like you can very easily follow those evolutionary tweaks that happened between the time that our ancestors were living in the trees to when they moved down to the ground and, you know, became modern humans. Mm -hmm. The the point about the foot having to change to walk upright is a good one, but another thing that, that was really crucial for humans to evolve to where we are today is the joints are so important. We couldn't do the things we do if we didn't have the joints that we have. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about this and looking at um, shoulder blades because shoulders are you know, relatively strange, really like our, our whole, what's called the pectoral girdle, so our arms and our shoulders, that... You know, you would think, you know, given how much we use our arms and our hands and, you know, you know, make tools and use those tools to create things or, you know, me typing at the laptop or even holding this phone right now or people who play sports, you know, being able to throw a fastball or, or something like that. You know, all this stuff is made possible by the flexibility that our bones and our musculoskeletal uh, system gives us, and that comes from our ancestry and life in the trees. And we know this because we can look at other primates and see how they differ and what they're not able to do. So, you know, um, again, to go back to the baseball example, you know, we, we can throw overhand, we can throw these fast pitches, 
Part of that is because we have shoulder blades and arms that were adapted to life in the trees. Our shoulder blade is on our back, and it's got this loose kind of connection to the rest of our skeleton that gives us a lot of flexibility. If you look at a primate like an olive baboon that you've probably seen, you know, in the doc- documentaries about you know wildlife in um, Eastern Africa, they can't throw overhand. They are very limited in their flexibility. They can only throw underhand because their shoulder blades are on the side, um, much the way that a dog or a cat is. Um, so, just the, the sort of way our skeleton is arranged and the, the sort of bones that we have uh, open up certain possibilities and pose certain uh, limitations to uh, what we can create. So in, in some ways, you know, our culture and the culture that we have really follows from our skeletal makeup. Like even the fact that we have a base 10 counting system is based on the fact that we've got 10 fingers, and that wasn't necessarily meant to be. That's just the standard number of fingers that we wound up with through evolution when our you know, fishy ancestors came out of the water and settled onto land and five, for whatever reason, became the standard number. It could have very easily been eight or three or four, and that would have you know, changed uh, you know, the kind of math we invented or the way that we count. So it's all the sort of stuff that we, you know, it's easy to take for granted, but when we start putting these pieces together, you can see how much our bones kind of uh, dictate the kind of uh, lives that we lead. Yeah, and the lives that we lead also dictate the nature of the bones. Don't they? I mean, you, you talk in the book about uh, uh, how people with sedentary lifestyles have less dense bones than people who have vigorous, active lifestyles. Uh, absolutely, yes. So, you know, you can work out as much as you want. You're probably not going to change the outside look, you know, of your bones. But inside, bones are very responsive to uh, the stresses and strains of day-to-day life and to exercise. So in studies that have been done, of the microstructure, the bone density and the bone makeup of people who lived uh, before the invention of agriculture, so you know prior to to about 12,000 years ago, and people after that point, uh, the bones of people who lived you know pre-agriculture were a bit stronger, a bit denser, a bit a bit less likely to uh, break, and it's hard to tell whether. You know, our more sedentary lifestyle has led our bones to, uh, this is just the natural response to the bone, whether this is an evolutionary adaptation to a different kind of lifestyle, but you can at least track this change that happens. And this is something that happens um, just in the day-to-day maintenance of bone over time. So another example that I mentioned in the book is that, you know, astronauts are people going to space and spend months and months and, uh, you know, the International Space Station or, you know, in zero-G environments, they lose about 1% of their bone mass uh, every month because in those environments, their bones don't have that regular push and pull that we do with gravity on Earth. So that's something that, you know, when these people return, they actually have to be very careful about not breaking their bones because their bones are going to be a bit more fragile from that gradual uh, attrition that naturally happens when they're in a different environment. Mm-hmm. So your final reflection is on thinking of yourself and what you will become after you're nothing but a mass of bones. Uh, what's what's your final thought for us about this book? Uh, really, what I want people to take away from this is that bones um, are really vital and dynamic parts of ourselves, uh, and that record our lives and record our history. And they're not just these you know static tissues that just grow and stay the same. Um, they're constantly involved in our lives and responding. And, you know, millions of years potentially, you know, after we're gone can still speak to who we were and the kinds of lives that, that we led. So just to change the way that people think about their own bones, then you just take a minute and sit and try and appreciate your own 
skeleton. Think of all those pieces in there and how, you know, even now their new bone is being laid down, old bone is being eaten up, like the amount of activity that you have will alter your skeleton. That You know, these are not, you know, totems of death, but they're really symbolic of life. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been talking with Brian Sweetek. The book is Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. It's a rich, deep read that looks at an awful lot of different topics, and we've only scratched the surface in terms of those topics. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also catch up with our programs on YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day.